0: what would it have looked like if the Romans had had an industrial revolution. So what I tried to do was preserve their morality, but combine it with our technology. But it soon became very clear that their morality would produce different technology.
1: Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. I'm Harrison Cayley. Joining me as usual is Ilan Martin, and today we are pleased to have joining us, Helen Dale. Helen is a lawyer, um, the author of three novels, and she writes on Substack at, Helen Dale at or helendale.substack.com. So we're gonna be talking to her today about, well, a range of topics. Um, the main one, I think, or at least the one that we plan to talk about is her relatively recent novel or set of novels, Kingdom of the Wicked. It's in two volumes here. I've got them. There we go. Kingdom of the Wicked is a an alternative history of the trial and yeah the trial of Jesus in an alternate Roman Empire. So well, we'll get into that. First of all, welcome Helen, and maybe can you tell us a bit? Oh. Uh, just tell us <laughs> tell us a bit, a bit about the book. Um, how did it start? What what made you come up with the idea what to I, write this? What
0: I'll, do, what I'll do is I will read. This is book one of Kingdom of the Wicked. It's a two book series. There isn't a th- third book and people keep asking for a third one, but no, it's finished. And book one came out in 2017 and book two came out in 2018, and I'm supposed to be writing a fourth book now for a British publisher, and I've written about 10,000 words and I'm still not kind of satisfied how with how it's going, so I'm not sure what's going to happen. I could be wrong about myself in that I didn't think book two, book, the, 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 my third novel, this one, I didn't think it was going to work and it finished up working absolutely fine. So writers can be wrong about how successful they are. But what I'll do for your listeners is I will read the blurb that my editor wrote on the back of this. Normally, authors write their own blurbs, but I'm terrible at them. And so my publisher did it. <laughs> and my editor is just spectacularly good at these, so much so he's acquired a reputation for it in publishing and that he's involved his publishing company in Australia is involved in the reissuing of a lot of Australian classics, including past winners of the Miles Franklin award, which is the first, the award I won for my first novel. I've written three of them. And that was a long time ago. That's my first novel, the hand that signed the paper. And I won the Miles Franklin award for that, which is the Australian equivalent of the Booker prize or the Pulitzer prize for fiction. So And he's published a lot of, because the Miles Franklin's an old award, it goes back decades, back to 60 or 70 years. And he, uh, he has actually rewritten blurbs on Australian classics that were hugely important because they won the country's top award. And people acknowledge that what he's done is better than what was done originally when the book first came out. So I will read you his blurb for Kingdom of the Wicked. It's only the first one but it will set the stage for book two as well. 784 Ab Urbe Condita, 31 AD. Jerusalem sits uneasily in a Roman Empire that has been... Jerusalem sits uneasily in a Roman Empire that has seen an industrial revolution and now has cable news and flying machines and rights and morals that are strange and repellent to the native people of Judea. A charismatic young leader is arrested after a riot in the temple. He seems to be a man of peace, but among his followers are zealots and dagger men, sworn to drive the Romans from the Holy Land. As the city spirals into violence, the stage is set for a legal case that will shape the future, the trial of Yeshua ben Yusuf. Intricately imagined and ferociously executed, Kingdom of the Wicked is a stunning alternative history and a story for our time. And that probably sets the stage as well as anything is going to.
1: Well, I read the, I read it. Um, I I started the first one last year and then just had to put it down. Um, You know, I had other things come up and then I finally got around to picking it up again, just in, I think, December and just tore through the first one. and uh, And then immediately ordered the second one and then tore through that. It's a... It's very well. It's engaging. It's very it's very entertaining, interesting, fun, deep. Um, I was surprised at um, well, in a lot of sci-fi or fantasy or alternative history because there's there's a there's a bit of it's it's kind of it's a science fiction novel essentially. Um, there's you get a lot of um, you get a lot of well cheap sci-fi but your book is is deep it's got real characters and you you get a sense of all of the different characters and there's a lot of characters and they're all like fully fledged and with their own personalities and they're like they're just they're just real people and so i appreciated that that was one of the things i appreciated the most in the novel is just how how deep the characters were how how unique they all were and there are some scenes in there especially in volume 2 or I think yeah I think it was a volume two of just nonstop action that uh, that was just uh, really well done really well crafted and those were the bits where I just I, I couldn't I couldn't put it down I had to had to keep going. Um, it involves some uh, oh, dear, some zealot I action. At night. Did I? Oh, yeah. No, luckily it was during the <laughs> afternoon, so I could <laughs> I could spend as much time. Because so as as that's
0: wanted. the thing, they're both like that. They're both mm-hmm. really fat. They're classic mm-hmm. fat world-built science fiction as opposed mm-hmm. to my first novel which is 60,000 words and shorties mm-hmm. and these are 140,000 words and really chewy mm-hmm. um I can explain how I was able to do that and yeah. it was I did get shortlisted for the Prometheus Prize which is a pretty decent science fiction prize I didn't win that but the judges were great they uh, and uh, Uh, Travis Corcoran, the guy who does novels with uplifted dogs. So you've got dogs with their characteristics, their loyalty and their love, but they've got human intelligence and uh, he he actually won and, and the judges were, were really very good they said well we thought you were a better writer but what you wrote isn't quite science fiction which is quite true it isn't quite science fiction whereas the winning novel is proper hard science fiction it's military sci-fi it's got lots of the, the lots of focus on the technology there's a mars colony and you know the kind of stuff that i enjoy reading i enjoy reading people like, like robert heinlein or um, Isaac Asimov's Foundation books, but it's not the kind of book I'd want to write, and I'm not as well read in science fiction. I mean, I've read f- a fair bit of popular science fiction over the years, but I'm not a disciplined reader of science fiction. I've never read a book by John Scalzi, for example, um, or Octavia Butler. I started one of hers and I just couldn't get into it and, and I put it down. I'm, because I'm a professional reviewer, that's the pile of books in there that are, are to be reviewed and all the nearly all of the ones behind me, particularly on the, that shelf there and the top shelf, are books that I have reviewed for various publications around the world. So I'm a professional book reviewer and I'm one of those people who reads a book a week and I don't review all of them. I used to review all of them when I was starting out as a writer, but I don't do it now because I've got a policy. I've, I don't want to write where there are books that I think are stinkers. I don't want to write stinker reviews. And there's a very good piece by Ted, I think you say his name, Gioia. Um, I would say it like that, Gioia. He's an Italian background. He's a music critic. And he's just written a piece for his substack where he says, you know, why did the Beatles get so many bad reviews? And he then goes through and he does a case study and shows that Beethoven got the same sort of absolutely awful reviews, including of things like the Eroica Symphony Sym- 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 and things like that. And he just goes through about how a lot of critics want to be quoted in the moment and be notable in the moment, so they write stinker reviews of things they don't like. And it's a way of big up, bigging yourself up as a critic, forgetting that in the case of The Beatles and Beethoven, you're actually dealing with people who have an enormous amount of talent and, and doing so as a cheap shot. And he says he stopped doing that. He no longer writes stinker reviews, and I no longer write the stinker reviews. I just, no, this is not book is not to my taste, and I just give it to a charity shop for Cats Protection or something down in the village. Um, and so the reason I can, I, I, one, I appreciated the Prometheus Prize judges saying that to me, you know, what I would written, it was a very unusually well written, the comments that Harrison was making and full character development. The reason for that is because I started out in literary fiction the hand that signed the paper is literary fiction, as in the sort of book that wins a Pulitzer or a Miles Franklin or a Booker, and that's why it did. And it won other prizes as well, but that's the most important one. And it's literary fiction where I have to build the characters, where I have to build do do scene setting and make the people real and believable. And then the reason for being able to do the military stuff well in Kingdom of the Wicked is the hand that signed the paper has a World War II Eastern Front setting. So I had to do a lot of research in the military history of the Second World War, which is why I have some awareness and why we've been discussing, Harrison and I have going back probably a couple of years now, the idea of panorology because I'm familiar with it from the history of the Soviet Union and the, the Warsaw Pact countries and the way that uh, if you read works by, you know, Czesław Milosh and people like that, people from, um, from Eastern Europe, uh, they will describe how Marx, the, 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 the new imposed colonial governments that were imposed by the Soviet Union just seemed to, to attract these really awful personalities uh, that had these traits in common. So I was... I, I, the expression I used to Harrison on his substack yesterday was it just seemed to attract wrong But, it, I mean, obviously there's more to it than that, but British people or Australians as well will so say, that bloke's just a wrong It's just a wrong And mm. it, it's sort of a, co- a combination of, of, of really awful character traits. And in the Scots courts, they to, they'll be described as the traits of a common criminal um, because in Scotland, in Scots law, you can't use um, certain, you can't use the personality disorders as in mitigation of sentence. You can in England and Wales, although well, they don't like it, but you can't use it at all in Scotland. And the, the, the legal principle in the Scottish criminal law is that these appear to be the traits of a common criminal, which is one of the reasons why Nicola Sturgeon's in so much trouble at the moment with trans stuff. It's just because basically the traditions of Scots law have just blown up all over. Um, Nicola Sturgeon's the First Minister of Scotland so what I was able to do was bring my traditional literary training and background to the character creation in Kingdom of the Wicked, and then I have a flair for military history. Just I was forced to learn an awful lot of it for my first novel, and my family has significant military service. Uh, my father served in the Royal Navy during the Second World War in the Atlantic convoys once. Protecting merchant shipping across to Britain from the United States to stop them finishing up at the bottom of the ocean because of German U-boats, and there's an age difference between my parents and my mother. My mother was in the Women's Land Army, and her father, because my dad was older than my mum, and her father was in the parachute regiment. Um, so there's sort of lots and lots of and all of her brothers served in various of the armed forces and all of dad's brothers did. And the younger ones, they weren't in World War II, they were in Korea. So lots of family history in in the armed forces. So I could if I didn't know or if something in military history confused me, I always had people in my family I could just ask, well, what does this mean? Or what does that mean? And what did what did that feel like to have that experience in um while you were in the armed forces what's it like to jump out of a dakota and have a, and open your parachute what does that feel like and to have people shooting at you from the ground and that kind of thing and so i was able to bring that to works of speculative fiction so sort i of type the subspecies of science fiction and that's why i could do the characters
1: well you've also got i mean there's uh it, it kind of um I don't know if it was me not paying attention, or if this, or if this was something that was deliberately, um, deliberately left unexplained as until the novel progressed. But the the there's this even this transhuman element to it of the um, yes, like you've got the operators of these flying machines, which are essentially like artificial biological planes or helicopters or or something attack vehicles, bio, bio, biomechanoid. Attack.
0: Yes, biomechanoids. Yeah. Yeah, the rationale for that was what I tried to do in Kingdom of the Wicked and tried to do it accurately, and I should explain this. My first degree was in Classics. I did Greek and Latin. So that's why I can do the languages and I can do the way Latin evolves and and all the grammar is perfect and all these classicists have read it and said, how did you do that? And I go, well, I did Latin for eight years at school and then at university. So that's the main thing. I only did Greek for three, and I've forgotten a lot of that. I had to get a Greek-speaking friend to help with some of the Greek, and he's credited in in the back. A bloke who knows knew, knows both modern Greek and learnt classical Greek as well. Because, believe me, I can read Greek. Like if I go to Greece, I've got to go to Greece for a conference at the end, um, the end of March. I can read it all, but if I speak. What the pronunciation I was taught at university for classical Greek to a modern Greek, and I actually did this with my partner when we went on holidays to Corfu a couple of years ago. I mean, it's it's like speaking in Shakespearean English, as yeah. if you're reciting from Hamlet to someone in the middle of the middle of your village high street in England now, <laughs> and they will just fall about the place laughing because the pronunciation <laughs> has all changed. So I can't understand modern Greek; they might as well be quacking. Um, if Greek is on the television, but all the, you know, the 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 chiron underneath, which is in Greek, I can read, I know what it means, but I can't say it. I can't speak it. But he could do both. And so I had to get some help with the Greek. So I did, so I knew a lot about the culture and history and languages of the ancient civilizations. But then I later became a lawyer, became a lawyer because nobody makes money out of being a classicist unless you Boris Johnson. He's one of those rare people who does a classics degree and makes money out of it. And I used to joke that I did a classics degree, and my profit on it was that I could translate public school mottos and read a great deal of Roman smart, (laughs) and that was all I could do. Whereas uh, whereas law is a practical thing, it's a professional qualification, it's designed for you to go out and get a proper job, which is precisely what I did. so I blended the, brought those two skills together with Kingdom of the Wicked and the question that I asked myself and uh, the essay at the back, I don't know whether you read the essay at the back of book one, you know, what would it look, have looked like if the Romans had had an industrial revolution? So what I tried to do was preserve their morality but combine it with our technology, but it soon became very clear that their morality would produce different technology is the romans just didn't have any issue with chopping up bodies and you know they knew the heart was a pump and and that the most famous doctor in the ancient world was a bloke called galen and he was a doctor of the gladiators before he became the emperor's doctor so this is a this is a society that doesn't care about dissection this is where they were different from the greeks aristotle was actually anti-dissection and the response of of very practical-minded romans and just If you want a difference between the two civilizations, the Greeks are philosophers and mathematicians and the Romans are engineers, military strategists and lawyers. So they just have, they they start, they're looking at the world from the different end of the telescope and you actually often get the Roman sort of engineer-oriented type thinking. They laugh at the philosophers and they tell dreadful jokes about the Greek. Great Greek philosophers we consider to sort of be heroic, you know, Aristotle and Plato and people like that, but even some of the lesser known ones, even when they were using them discoveries like Pythagoras and Pythagoras's theorem and Archimedes and all of this terrific maths, that Roman engineers just applied, used it in an applied form. They had complete disdain for pure math. They thought it was a giant waste of everyone's time. And they would call philosophy the second Greek vice. Because the first Greek vice was homosexuality and it wasn't that the Romans were massive homophobes they didn't care but they in their own civilization didn't have an issue with homosexuality they truly did not care but they thought that the Greeks having these symposiums they were all blokes there were no women there except maybe some weight staff that kind of thing where they were supposed to be talking about philosophy and all these high-minded things the Romans took one look at that because if the Romans had a big party with lots of alcohol. It meant something very different, and they looked at the Greeks and they went, "Philosophy, you're chatting about philosophy. If you pull the other one, it plays jingle bells seriously. You're all bumming each other, you bum boys." <laughs> Literally, that was the Roman attitude to in Greek intellectual life. um So it was. Uh, So I tried to bring the two together, but the Roman morality meant that their technology for me, once I did research in this area, the effect of it was that I thought the technology would develop in a different order. And in our society it was the communications that develops faster than everything else, whereas with the Romans I thought, there is an essay at the end of book one of Kingdom of the Wicked where I go into this, Um, but I thought plausibly based on my knowledge, that they were much more likely to come up with technical things in the biosciences to parallel great skills in engineering and design much more than they were in comms. So basically I have got them like Britain in the 60s. Their communications in Kingdom of the Wicked is Britain in the 60s. There are only three or four television stations um, and they all stop at midnight, which is the way the, B- the BBC and ITV and whatnot used to do back in the day, and play the national anthem, and then it just go. The screen would go blank, and the, it was United Kingdom's way of saying good night, everybody. You're are you up this late? Go to bed now. Um, and the last thing they would do is play the national anthem. Yeah. So this is, and they got quite primitive. They can talk. They have telephony, and they have video, the ability to do video conferencing, but it's very expensive and it's very cumbersome. And I have scenes where people are having problems with it. You know, they have trouble with getting the comms to work in court. At one point there's difficulty with getting the comms to work with Pontius Pilate in his office and he's supposed to be talking to his superior in Syria and it doesn't work and there's this awkward scene where uh, he's having a go at his clerk, um, his law clerk, the equivalent of what a uh, uh, Judge or the SCOTUS would have, law clerk Romans had them as well. And so be, I was a law clerk, I was a baby lawyer. Um, and in Australia they're called an associate, and in Britain they're called a judicial assistant. Um, for a, I was for a Supreme Court judge. And so he's having a go at his law clerk and he's saying, Horace, you're faffing, can't you get this fixed, you know, to make it work properly? Um, so whereas their biomedical stuff is like our communications. So what has happened is they have advanced much more rapidly their science is at its most advanced point with biology and engineering and not with uh, and its civil engineering and transport engineering rather than with communications engineering which is much more primitive so it's at a different stage so they've gone right down genetics they've got crispr they do genetic modification i don't foreground it because i didn't want to write gattaca because Gattaca is an excellent film, and but I didn't want to redo it. But you should have noticed while you were reading it that the Romans, the bloke who's got crooked teeth, Scylla, other Romans comment on it because all the rest of them have had their teeth fixed and they've all got perfect teeth. Um, the, the Roman families are suspiciously orderly. You know, if there are two older girls, the third one is always a boy. If there are two older boys, the third one is always a girl. You know, they're not. none of them are fat um they uh, it, so it's, it's all a, suspiciously a, a orderly and, and well run yeah.
1: roman eugenics yes.
0: and i i and because they did permit that in their society that's the thing they 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 encouraged the killing of ugly or disabled children and to really i only did one big scene in the first book with the eugenics just to to fish that people so that they understood that no these little hints that i'm dropping everywhere else they're a genuine thing, and when I've got the scene where uh, um, Andreas Linnaeus, who's a, a likeable Roman in the sense that he's very much he's on the Whig side rather than the Tory side of their politics, he's quite progressive in his views, um, even he, when he encounters a witness, when he's going around and doing what in Scots law is called a precognition, because Scots law in this case is taken from Roman law, where he has to do a witness interview first. It's The system is structured differently from the common law. And he has to do a precognition with a witness for trial, and the witness is Jewish, and the, the witness in this case is based on the story of St Peter. Um, and he's got a child who was uh, spina bifida, um, and when Linnaeus, the, the advocate, which is advocatus, which is what they call a barrister or an attorney, uh, he sees this child, he doesn't even know if it's human, he doesn't know what it is, because where he comes from and where he grew up in Rome and Italy, children like that just don't, aren't allowed to live. Um, yeah, and, it, and the thing is, would have been aborted, that is made clear in the conversation because amniocentesis has revealed the spina bifida, and the first thing that the Roman doctor does in the colonial hospital is say, oh, you don't want that, you should have an abortion, there's something wrong with it, and then, of course, gets rebuffed because they're anti-abortion, and then when the child is born, the obstetrician tries to do the same thing and go, oh, you don't want that, we can expose it, we can kill it for you and harvest it for body parts, <laughs> and it's just a completely different morality because roman law permitted that and all i've done is just take what existed already in roman law and just applied modern technology to it and that was the scene that was meant to bring out the eugenics so you suddenly you realize you're dealing with a great civilization that is very capable that has good science and good law and and a, a profoundly orderly way of organizing itself but it's eugenics and it's just got different values, different values about sex, different values about um, uh, justice, different values about equality. It doesn't really believe in equality, doesn't think people are equal. Um, and yet it works. I didn't want to write a dystopia. A lot of science fiction is dystopian. It's not dystopian. This is a society that works. And I did get a lot of people writing to me after the, this book in particular came out saying, Oh, I really like the Roman world you portrayed in Kingdom of the Wicked. I think I'd like to live there. And I'm sort of going, I'm not quite sure that's what I want. But okay, fine.
1: Well, I think that's one of that's one of the another one of the great things about the book. So on top of the characterization, you have these full, rich, like full cultures and societies. And you can get into them, so you so you identify with the characters. You come to like a lot of these characters, and then in your mind, you're living you're living with them, and it becomes normal in your head, um, in a, in a certain way. It's like okay, now I can imagine myself living here. And but there, but the the one of the interesting things is, well, one of the main conflicts in the book is of course the conflict between this Roman way of life and then the Judean way of life, which is totally like religiously conservative and. From the Romans' point of view, backwards, and then you have these uh, these Judeans who look at these at these immoral, you know, heathen Romans who are who are in charge, and that's where you get the that's where you that's where the the big elements of the conflict come into play, where you have the zealots, you have the the zealot movement, and so um, so this was I'm guessing this was perhaps intentional, but perhaps also came just came through naturally through imagining. Well, through reading history, first of all, and then imagining this this clash of cultures and the region itself. But you get some echoes of, um, you know, Israel and Palestine today and the kinds of dynamics and things that go on. Um, you know, you've got the, the armored personnel carriers going through the streets and the, and the kids throwing rocks and at the soldiers and, uh, you know, some some kids playing football and every once in a while, a you know, a soldier, soldier were a soldier will join in, but then you've got, uh, of course zealots. And so you've got anti-terror opera- operations and, um, um, how much of the, how much of, how much of that was intentional is, is kind of, um, taking present day dynamics and, and putting them backwards, well, uh, putting them back in time. But just, first of all, one other thing is that there's, there's a flip that goes on because the, the the terrorists in in Kingdom of the Wicked are the Judeans, um, who nowadays are the Israelis, and the the kind of the roles have been reversed. Um, so how how did you square all that in your head, and how did that contribute I to the writing? I
0: didn't use Israel. Uh, my I wanted to because I had controversy with my first book. I had a run into the Jewish lobby with the first novel. I didn't want to that to happen again mm-hmm. with the second one. Um, Uh, That that was for this one, for the hand that signed the paper. So what I did, the model that I had was actually uh, the Americans in Iraq. Mm. I used the war on terror. That was my model, and mm-hmm. a lot of the material about the torture and the waterboarding I got when Obama actually released all the CIA memo- memos about uh, enhanced interrogation. And I remember just downloading them all from the I think it was the Department of Justice website, and I just had them all on my computer. This was years ago now, when I was at, I wrote because these are such big books. And I've never been a full-time... Well, I, ha- I am now a full-time writer, but when I wrote these, I wasn't a full-time writer. So that's the two books together. So And, and I'm a six-foot-one and I have large hands. So you can see what I mean about that's a lot of work.
1: Here, um, here, here it is with next to a phone. So this is going
0: back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they're big, chunky. It's like Lord of the Rings. It's a lot of work went, went into it. And when um, I was doing this the original research for it, I was actually at Oxford. It was in 2009, 2010, and instead of writing a DPhil, I wrote a novel, <laughs> and I was very lucky my college didn't say, you have to pay your scholarship back, you rotter. Um, I thought they were going to. And so um, what, and that was, of course, Obama had been elected and had promised he was going, he said he was going to close Gitmo down and all of this kind of thing, which is, and it was the Gitmo thing that gave me the cover. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, that was my idea for the cover. Of course, I can't execute that. A really fabulous illustrator in Scotland did those, a guy called Terry Rogers, he's credited in the back. And the books are beautifully, you will have noticed when you went through them, they're beautifully illustrated, aren't they? They're really well. His artwork is really good. Um, I mean, it's not overdone, but there's about, I suppose, a dozen illustrations in each mm-hmm. book, and it's just really high quality.
1: Yeah, the mosaic style. My, my idea style, was, really cool.
0: imagine... Sorry, mosaic, mosaic style. style. Yes, it's very, very, cl- yeah. Excuse me. And so anyway, what I had in my head was imagine the Americans in Iraq. And so I things like the IEDs and improvised explosive devices and the problems with the religious clash and so on and so forth. I I, I drew from the war on terror from Iraq from Afga- Afghanistan. I sort of blended bits from both of those. But I also um, was con- conscious of the fact that the Romans were a very different colonial sort of colonial power from the way the Americans are now. Like the Romans are like the British in the 19th, 19th century India. If they decided that some aspect of your civilization was barbaric, then that practice in your civilization was just obliterated, was wiped from the face of the earth. Now, to give you an idea of how thorough this was. The reason nobody in Europe, or very few people in Europe, and by extension, people in the United States, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, um, South Africa, uh, the British Commonwealth, mostly the White Commonwealth, but not all of it. I mean, the West Indies is like this as well. The reason there is only one wife and nobody marries their cousin is not to do with the British Empire, it's to do with the Roman Empire, because the Romans disliked polygamy they thought that societies did it were violent right they are Um, and the romans just hated the other thing they hated was consanguinity so i mean and often the joke that you see in roman writing it's quite unkind about jews and not just them other because other cultures had this as well marrying their cousins they'll make jokes about oh they're trying to have two-headed babies now you know so they had figured out They were quite good at on the sort of ag science genetics type aspect of it, that if you had two closer degrees of relatedness, then you finished up with birth defects. And, of course, in the Roman world, people with birth defects were just killed, whereas they noticed these silly Jews kept them alive. And there's actually quite a long passage in Josephus where he who was a, a Jewish person and historian who wrote in Greek but became a Roman citizen and was sympathetic to all three cultures and so tries to tries to play both ends against the middle and sometimes comes, comes unstuck terribly, he wrote a book called The Jewish War about the conflict that these books don't cover, but they're leading up to it. And he actually has quite a long passage about the really, really big differences on this point about relatedness between the two cultures and the treatment of disabled people which the Romans just kill and the Jews leave alive and that's a big difference between the two. Um, So people don't realise that this ancient civilization, that vast area that it conquered, it just got rid of these two practices and in the Middle East now, the only reason people marry their cousins is because it was reconquered by Islam and that's permitted in Islam and not permitted and because the Roman values passed into Christianity and Christianity has the same rule, don't marry your cousin, you disgusting, creepy pervert, um, and the Christians took it even further. Um, at the Council of Trent, the Christians actually got the Roman rule and extended it, and it got to the point where it was actually quite hard for people to get spouses at one point because you had to have, be so many degrees of relatedness apart and of course there was the inevitable problem of hypocrisy both the roman world and the christian world had this but it was worse with the christians um, because the roman dynasties tended to be shorter because they didn't have primogeniture, so they would basically run out of legs and you finished up having either a civil war or an adoptive succession where somebody else takes over um, in the roman world because they didn't have the idea in roman law that your eldest son should get all your property that's a later idea Roman law of succession is really different. Um, much kinder to women, basically. That's the main reason for that. Uh but so what would happen? Most you would get, and or you would, if you read Suetonius and Tacitus are two the two leading Roman historians, they get absolutely furious when some emperor passes a special bill through the Senate, because that's what has to happen. So he can marry his cousin or something like that, because they find it absolutely disgusting and nobody else can do this. It's just this. Powerful person is passing, bending the rules to suit himself. But it was much worse in Europe, with famously the Habsburgs, who you probably have seen pictures of with all of their fat lips like that. And that wasn't just the fat lip; their jaws were deformed. And you finished up with uh, towards the end of the Habsburg families, because the, they reigned over various parts of Europe and Spain and Austria and that kind of thing. There was one bloke who was born who his parents, both his parents, both his mum and dad, was so inbred that he was more inbred than if his parents had been brother and sister because they'd just piled up the genetic errors going down the line. Now, the way the Habsburgs did that is they would get papal dispensations from the rules against marrying your cousin. So it was the Christian version of whacking a bill through the Senate because you were the emperor so that you could marry your cousin. But the thing is that was relatively confined just to a very small group of aristocrats in Europe and the great bulk of the population married out, married out, married out, married out. So that had two effects. Um, You had far lower disease rates. It was much more likely, much less likely rather, to have genetic defects in children in Europe than the Middle East and many other parts of the world. The other religion that hates um, consanguinity is Buddhism, by the way. They don't like it either. To this day, the parts of India that were historically Buddhist don't have inbreeding, whereas the parts that are mainly Muslim and Hindu do, that kind of thing, Buddhism doesn't like inbreeding either. I don't know much of the theology as to why, but those are the three religions, Roman paganism, Christianity and Buddhism are the three that hate consanguinity, of the big religions that have existed or do exist historically. So, and that the other thing that happened in Europe as a result of the Roman and then the Christian rules about cousin marriage is, uh, apart from fewer birth defects, is it short? It sheared all kin groups out of our societies. So it made it much harder to set up wars of kin against kin. You had to have religious wars, or you had to have national wars. You couldn't fight wars based on tribalism. It was much harder to have tribal conflicts that we associate with parts of Africa, with parts of the Middle East, with parts of China and and Asia. So it just really changed that rule. So when I was doing the Romans in Judea, I was going, they're not going to be kind like the Americans are and say, oh, if the Afghans have boy play um, and we'll let them get away with it because it's part of their culture. If the Romans saw something that they thought was abominable culturally, they just stopped it. And they would absolutely stop it so much so that entire civilizations, thousands of years later, have taken on that Roman trait and are just, we are appalled in the same way that the Romans are. The other thing is, why are we so appalled when the Muslims stone people? Because the Jews used to stone women for adultery and the Romans stopped them from doing it. And their response was like Lord Napier in British India. Um, Lord Napier, because he was the one that stopped the custom of sati, which was the widows burning themselves on their husbands' pyres. And the Indians told him, a bit like um, the Afghans with their boy play in Afghanistan um, with the Americans, they, the Indians told um, Lord Napier, who's the... Senior British official at in at the time in the 18th century, I think maybe the 19th century. Oh, this is part, part of our customs. This is our culture. We, we widows immolate themselves on the husband's pyre, and often it wasn't voluntary. They were being pushed in, and that's what he didn't like. Um, and he said, "Oh, if that's your custom, our custom is to erect a gallows next to where you're doing the, your funeral pyre, and any man who does this will be hung by the neck until he's dead." And yes, so they broke the Indians of it. So the British and the Romans are more similar in terms of their imperial policy than the Americans. The Americans are very soft and they struggle to change the societies that they colonise. Um, and so with the, with the Romans I thought, right, I'll make them look a bit like the United States because of the weaponry and because of the way the zealots fight the terrorism and so on and so forth, but I have to have them behaving like Romans with the Roman attitudes, but of course the Roman attitudes to modern people—they sound British because of the diet of films like Zulu or, um, you know, or a Passage to India, or all the, all of the films that are sort of heat and dust that are designed to capture what life was like in the British Raj, and that tends to be the mental image, which is why I had to Americanize it quite a lot, otherwise people would just get. People, the, a mental image of plummy accents and pith helmets and Michael Caine running around the place, and that's not what I wanted. I wanted someone who looked a bit like Al Pacino, some, some sort of dark, yeah, yeah. dominating Italian American kind of person. Well,
1: so, speaking of helmets, so in in one of your latest articles, um, oh, let me let me just bring it up to to refresh my my memory. Yeah, what are the engines of progress? So you talk about some some relevant things in this article. It's kind of a, uh, a review of two books, um, Stephen Davis's The Wealth Explosion and Douglas Carswell's Progress Versus Parasites. And in it, you've got this AI generated image of some Roman soldiers. Uh, maybe I'll use it on, the, uh, yes. on the, the, the thumbnail. How close was that to how you yeah, might have imagined it? It's not mine. I, I know, yeah, well, but no, how, how close it's was not it? not
0: mine. Someone, someone gave it to one of this AI art things mm-hmm. as a prompt. And the prompt they gave uh was Rome never fell. And then of course, because you need huge amounts of processing for this chat GPT and all yep. this various AI stuff that's come out now. Basically that was the prompt given and apparently this man then went to bed. <laughs> <laughs> and he got up in the morning and that's what he had given him. Um, so that's an AI art and it's not yep. mine at all. The, what the illustration in colour though, the mosaic art, um, and I should explain um, because I'm a best-selling author in Australia. The edition, I think, you in America finish up because I don't have a US publisher. You in America finish up with my British edition, and the mosaic art is is done in grayscale. It's very nice, yeah. but it's done in grayscale. I'm just yeah. going to stand up and get the Australian edition of. Sorry, it makes it a bit seasick <laughs> when I do that because of the way the camera works on this thing. Um, the Australian edition, because I, have a, I write bestsellers and it's worth the publisher doing it, there is that oh, illustration from my substack in colour better. in the Aussie edition of the book, and that's one mm-hmm. of Terry Rogers' illustrations Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few color illustrations in the books that that are done in grayscale in the edition the UK edition that you have um yeah. but are done in in color in um in the Aussie edition that's why oh, yeah. that's one of the striges um mm-hmm. in in color mm-hmm. and Great. there's some just some of his artwork, and this is, I'll show you one from book two as well because I've had a lot of fan mail. People really like this one of his.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's the Aviatrix, biomechanoid pilot who communicates through her hair with the yeah. with the streaks the, the Um, so in the Aussie editions, they're in color, those. Um so my image and what my publisher did was got me to sit down with Terry Rogers, the illustrator, and I can draw a bit. I'm quite good at engineering, technical type things. So if you, like, parked your motorcycle in front of me, I'd be able to draw that accurately. And I, I'm careful. I walk around it and I make sure the right bit of machinery is connected to the other right bit of machinery so it all works so you don't have that problem that with girls where you, they draw a piece of machinery and the engineering doesn't work. I don't have that issue. But I'm not imaginative. So I tried to sketch out some ideas, with my, my technical ideas, and describe to Terry what I wanted to achieve with the illustrations. And he has just basically picked my brain. So what I visualised was not what the AI came out with, although I find, found the AI completely convincing, I have to say, when I saw that. I thought, yes, that's perfect. It's brilliant. What I saw was, uh, what I visualised is, are the drawings, the illustrations that are in yeah. the books by Terry Rogers, both the black and white line art that he did and the uh, colour illustrations that I've shown you. Are, uh, I'll show you, hold up one of the pieces of black and white line art yeah. he did, which is in the monitor room, and you can see the television sets got dials like from the 1950s, you know, that that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um so that's well, maybe the, white maybe the AI
1: armor. So that's what be, I
0: visualize. That's what yeah. I visualized.
1: Maybe the AI armor could be, AI armor could be some kind of like elite force or something that uh, elite stormtroopers
0: or something. It also to be fair there are similarities between that AI image and Terry's artwork. It's in, I mean, there, Terry's artwork's all over the internet for these books, particularly in Australia, and that AI works by scraping the internet and, and then putting it all together. So there's a little bit of Terry Rogers in that AI, particularly mm-hmm. the way the uniforms mm-hmm. work, that kind of thing. And that mm-hmm. just will have been scraped off the internet by the AI. Um, so well, it's, uh, it's sort of like how to put all this stuff together and and come up with something, but I found it completely plausible, which is why I put one of Terry's original illustrations in that Substack post. And, but then I put the AI there as well, just to give people a sense of other people and other things come up with different images.
1: Very cool. Well, I want to get into two different, or did you want to say something? Well,
2: um, I I don't know if this is too much of a a digression, but um, I did want to, I haven't, uh, had a chance yet, Helen, to read either of those books. I do like speculative fiction quite a bit. Um, I love Neil Stevenson's Anathem, although that leans more heavily towards, uh, sci-fi in, in some respects. And, um, I like that you evoked, uh, uh, Philip K. Dick's Man in the High Castle, um, as this kind of seminal, yes. uh, book in, in, one of your articles. Um, and it's it's also just a pleasure to you're highly creative, obviously, and uh, you're you're finding all of these outlets to communicate um, a different perspective on uh, political issues, issues of law, in history, uh, religious um, issues, among other things. Um, and I was perusing the articles in your Substack, which. Uh, are, um, are very topical, uh, and, and come at a lot of, uh, contemporary issues. We talk a lot about wokeness, for instance, and, and Marxism and totalitarianism here on the show, as I'm sure Harrison, uh, has, has shared with you. Um, and you, um, I, I love the fact that you had, I hadn't gotten through too many of them yet. Um, but you, you, have become this kind of a patron for Lorenzo Warby in your series, Worshipping the Future, which is a, a, a kind of... Yes,
0: he's very good. And he's he deserves to be much better known. And the reason I'm using the fact, using my substack, I'll be completely frank about this, um, is because he's not well-known. He should be, and he's not, and... I completely acknowledge that success in the creative arts, which I've had and he has not had up until this point, is often a matter of luck. It's not just talent. It is a matter of luck. And I was helped in my 20s with the hand that signed the paper, winning those big awards, and then it became a massive bestseller in, in two countries, the UK and Australia, and that kind of gave me a launch pad. And it meant that even though it took me a long time to write two more books, you know, 20-odd 20, 20 years, I was I always had this presence in the media. I could write nonfiction. I could write short stories, and I have done so for various magazines. I was always able to have that voice in, in, the, in the Anglis, not the United States so much, but in the Anglis, in the, the British Commonwealth, um, I, I was able to do that and Lorenzo kind of missed that and I can tell a little bit of his story if you like but he's very talented and I have thought he was very very talented for a long time and I've tried at various points unsuccessfully in the past to promote his work and it hasn't been picked up on but I've been able to use Substack to get people to read more of Lorenzo Warby and I'm really pleased about that there are people paying quite a lot of money uh because I want everyone to read his work. So I don't put up a paywall on my Substack and I never will. But I've got a system where you can subscribe to it if you like his stuff and if you want to do the traditional Substack method. But I've also got a tip system like blogging. So you can just tip and put money in the tip jar. And that's better for people who don't have lots of money and it's actually weirdly more profitable for, for, for Lorenzo it is anyway because Substack doesn't take its cut only Stripe takes a tiny tiny little amount out of the tips and and I've just been really pleased about that because that I've been able to give his prominence because he he's written for me I commissioned a, a book from him and he's finished it, although he, what he's able to do in response to some clever comments that people have left there's some really, really good remarks, what he's able to do is modify it. So when I do take it, take his book with an established audience, I will, I will take it. I will introduce him to my literary agent in London and say, this book has already got an established audience. This is what I've done with it. Find a publisher for it. Um, that's that's the plan, the long term plan, which will take about a year to do. Obviously, because th- he's written about thirty essays altogether, um, mm-hmm. that will come out once a week on my Substack. That well, back to your comments about his writing now. <laughs>
2: yeah, well, so that that book is going to be a collection of this these essays that he's rolling out right now. Is. Did I understand yes, that correctly? Yes, okay. that's going
0: to be a collection, but obviously modified in light of people's very thoughtful remarks on other substacks, particularly from Arnold Kling, um, but also but also from people in Britain, from Simon Cook, who used to be an MP, and uh, and just from people who do, – I don't even know who they are, just people who turn up and leave thoughtful remarks in the comments. Mm-hmm.
2: So, Well, that's wonderful. And um, I wonder if uh, in uh, in working with them to, to roll out these essays – uh, there's one on uh, Marxism and and another on uh, social justice and all of these various dimensions of uh, of wokeness and cancel culture that we've been um, looking at so closely. And um, uh, one of the promises of the series is is that um, it will suggest a way to address uh, wokism.
0: Yes, he's written he's written he's actually finished. Uh, it's not just one essay at the end. I think it's three or four now because he's got. Lorenzo's background is in policy development. He used to work in the civil service in Australia. Oh. Now that might sound like not like not a good reckon, <clears throat> recommendation because Americans and British people have negative experience of government employees. Australia is what does economists call a high state capacity country. It has the highest state capacity in the world and uh, I use a, a quite a crude Australian term to, cap, to capture what high state capacity means. It's the state's ability, not the private sector, the state's ability to get shit done. Uh, and for, an old, for a whole range of unusual historical reasons, and there's an article about the very odd Australian political and historical governance structures on my substack, a whole range of reasons, Australia has finished up extraordinarily well-governed. Now, that doesn't mean it's necessarily always right. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have problems and so on and so forth. But there are certain things, like I remember for years, because I've had had a degree of interest in classical liberal or in America libertarian politics, although classical liberalism and libertarianism are really quite different. You know, they would say confidently, oh, it's not possible to centrally plan an immigration system. And I would finish up being the only Australian in the room, even though you can't tell with this accent. And I would sit there and go, well, that's not true. And they would look at me and i go, you do know how the Australian points-based immigration system works, don't you? And then there would be sounds of frantic Googling as they looked it up. And then they suddenly realised that the, the, the country that The Economist and lots of other measures says has the best run immigration system in the world actually centrally plans it. And and then there would be sort of awkward silences And and this would often happen with American libertarians American libertarianism is very interesting It only applies to America It does not make any sense anywhere else in the world And it particularly doesn't make any sense in Australia And then they would sort of start You would get this, oh, it's not rational to vote And then there would be the Australian going um, Australia has compulsory voting and it knocks the United States into a hot hat in terms of its governance qualities. And then all sorts of frantic. The sound of frantic Google searching again is, just, oh, shit. And so all the things about voters don't know anything. The Australian electoral system is incredibly complicated, and yet all the Australians, even the dumb ones, understand how to work it. So it shows you, you can have really good civics education and make it work. And you would have these sort of very awkward, awkward sounds of Google searching. And probably the funniest thing I ever saw was at a conference in Australia once. They got Ilya Shapiro, who's the classic myth of the rational voter type. He's not not Kaplan, but he's another one of these people who says it's not rational to vote. And he did a speech on this in front of an Australian audience and a politically engaged audience. You only hire someone like that to give a speech if you've got people in the audience who are interested in that sort of thing. And I don't think I've ever seen an individual more comprehensively shredded in my life than that. It was just extraordinary. Was just sort of like there's nothing left of him at the end. And uh, a few people had to say, dear Americans, keep your libertarianism in America because it doesn't apply to it anywhere else. It doesn't even apply well in Britain. You saw what the- happened to Liz Truss. That's, uh, defend- mm. that's, that's the closest Britain gets to a libertarian. And she was just defenestrated. Out and, thrown out of Number Ten Downing Street and never, never to be heard from or seen again, You're consigned into outer darkness. Um, the closest we get to that kind of thing is Margaret Thatcher, a classical liberal who is deeply rooted in British tradition, nineteenth-century Gladstone, Mill, pe- people like that. Um, so Australia is a very unusual system, and one of the effects of it is it's got very, very capable government governance. And anyway, Lorenzo worked in this governance system in the way the Australian Civil Service governs the country for many, many years. And a huge part of Australian politics is you don't just come up with an idea, you have to come up with a policy, and the policy has to be capable of being implemented, and you have to think your thoughts all the way through to the end so that you get a serious addressing of What are the implications of your policy? What are the unintended consequences of your policy? How will your policy cash out? Have Mm -hmm. any aspects of it ever been tried in any other country? Have any aspects ever been tried in Australia? Remember, Australia is a federal system. So we also have the same tradition as the United States of the the laboratory of the states. So the different states do different things, often very, very differently. Um, So... You get that kind of approach. And so Lorenzo is bringing his governance experience as someone who's worked in the civil service in Australia to say, okay, these are the problems, Uh, this is where they come from, And he's got a particular point. The reason the essays on Marxism are up now is that he thinks the reason the social sciences in in the academy have undone themselves so badly is because Marxism made it socially acceptable to be wrong at university and to continue to teach wrong stuff at university even though it had been falsified. And... He said, you know, as soon as all the, uh, certainly by 1991, but even earlier, Hungarian Revolution, once we became aware of the Holodomor post-war, after Khrushchev's speech, those kind of things, Lorenzo's argument is all of the Marxists in the universities should have been dismissed because Mm. the ideas uh, don't work. Mm -hmm. And... The way the analogy he draws, he, he drew to me, and I think I've used it in one of my introductions, but he will use it again in one of his essays, is he says, you know, chemistry doesn't use phlogiston anymore. Medicine doesn't teach miasma, which is the way we used to think disease was spread. Um, it's these things, it, you don't have biology departments or, at universities teaching creationism, although I have to say the transgender thing, the idea that you can change sex, is very very close to creationism, and the idea that you have a gendered soul is also that's theology. You know, you have a gender identity that's separate from your physical embodied reality.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's Cartesian dualism, and even I know that I'm not a philosopher; I'm a bloody lawyer. But you still learn that at the, at the beginning because it, it some p- legal theorists you know formulate, going back to the Romans, have similar sorts of ideas about the way the law works, you know, do you only obey it because someone's telling you to do it, or do you obey it because you have an inner sense of your idea of that you should obey the law? I mean, sort of, uh, and that's that, That's a very quick summary of a, a bloke called Herbert Hart, who was actually a principal of my college, Brasenow, at Oxford for many years. Um, so... You, you, you learn these things and you just sort of think, but that's not true. You know that's not true. It's been disproven. And the thing is, once something has been disproven like that, it should be dropped from the academy. And so Lorenzo's art, the reason he's building up this huge body, decent-sized body of work on just the wrongness of Marxism and then expressing how similar the wrongness of uh, various aspects of wokery. He calls it post-enlightenment progressivism. Um, but... Uh, because he thinks woke is a bit, it can be useful, but imprecise, whereas post-enlightenment progressivism is more precise. That's typical Lorenzo. And his he doesn't want to say that it's a form of Marxism. He doesn't really like the cultural Marxism argument. He thinks that's a bit glib. His argument is rather... Once you have made it okay to be catastrophically wrong and to have people continue to teach stuff that doesn't work, that is catastrophically wrong, in your institutions of higher learning, they are no longer places of knowledge or the knowledge acquisition of knowledge. They are no longer places of discovery. They become places where you recite catechism. And the thing is the catechism need not be Marxism. It can be other things, but Marxism has cleared the undergrowth and made it much easier. Mm. And that's the reason why he's built up this body of argument about Marxism, and he's done that very, very deliberately. Because I think compellingly, he, he, I think his claim is true that if you continue to allow people to teach things like mad things like dualism or creationism or phlogiston or whatever it is, then it, it just becomes okay for people to continue to come along and just to use it Australianism, make shit up.
2: Yeah. Do, do you think uh, – So that's think why given, he's
0: so precise, yeah.
2: Yeah. I was just wondering, do you think, um, g- given the fact that he's coming from uh, Australian governance and policy, that uh, where he's going with it can be, um, given how different uh, the U.S. would seem to be based on what you said, uh, can it be applied to, to U.S. policy and thinking and, and – I change. don't know.
0: Ultimately that is up to America. That is up to Americans. Um, it would certainly work in the UK because right. a lot of the things that he's directing his arguments to, particularly the tertiary sector, is funded in the UK in the same way that it is in Australia. So this is these are things that can literally be fixed in mm-hmm. the United Kingdom and the UK, but by just going through your tertiary education budget and just putting lines through things and going, not funding that, not funding that, not funding that, shut it down. No more queer theory no more sociology, no more women's studies, which is all turned into queer theory or gender studies or no, nothing, uh, no more gender identity. It's not true. You know, this is, you keep the books in the library, absolutely. Right. In the same way that you have to have copies of Mein Kampf and you have to have copies of Lenin and Stalin and Chairman Mao's little red book, you have to have all that in there, if nothing else, to teach people what not to do. Right. Okay, all the people once all believed all this silly nonsense. You should go and read it to see how stupid human beings could be and then be a bit more humble yourself um, before you come up with big ideas. Mm-hmm. But, yes, yeah, certainly in Britain and Australia that is something you can do. You can just go through the tertiary education budget. You know, someone like an education minister who's got good, what Australians call mastery of policy detail would literally be able to go through it and just go delete, 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 delete and then that... Fu- like on a big Excel spreadsheet, that funding would just drop out. Um, mm. You can't do that in the United States. It may be harder for you to do, but um, but you could. What it could inspire Americans to do is go. Okay, so this is how you develop a detailed policy program. This is how someone does it in a country that's very good at it, that has this ability to come up with. M- Good policies that can be implemented and that require mastery of policy detail. Because for a lot, I've noticed a lot of American policy developments very sketchy. It's not thought through, and they don't seem to realise just how much work is involved. And that's why things don't work. Like you go to America and things don't work. The airports don't work. The police don't work. And and it's not necessarily that they're they're racist or violent, although they sometimes can be. The point is that nothing works properly. You And everything takes a long time to do things and your banks don't work. Even your private sector doesn't work. I mean, the absolute nightmare of American banking. I mean, I, I, I used to make a very good living as a corporate solicitor, being able to set up foreign currency accounts for people. I mean, I had one myself so that I can earn all this money from American think tanks and I got, I've always got a very strong sense of my goodness the united states is a great nation in spite of its government not because of it it's the absolute <laughs> opposite of australia and the uk <laughs> you know well, it's the individual genius and energy of americans mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. enables america to do so well yeah, but, despite oh, as soon their as government you try to do, do something with your yeah as soon as you try to do something big with your government at this point it doesn't work at all. Yeah, and you well, the it, colonialism. That, that, that's why.
1: The, that leads me to. That leads me uh, That's to,
0: why. The, I mean, British people. That's why British people looked at the colonialism in Afghanistan and Iraq and went, "Oh my God, you can't do you, you can't do colonialism either."
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, a few of those things lead me to a question that I've wanted to ask you about for a while. Um, I've, I first heard about you, I believe, through um, your interview with uh, Josh Slocum that you did uh, like over yes. a year ago. I'm a
0: great admirer. And I'm a great admirer of Josh's.
1: Yeah, me too. Um, but one of the things you said on his show um, was about your own time, because I, I believe you've done some work, you know, within the Australian government too. Is that correct? Just really quickly? Yes,
0: I have. I've, yeah. I've been a legal advisor, senior legal advisor to a parliamentarian which is basically where you're seconded out at the civil service to provide advice to a parliamentarian at a high level, the idea being to, to improve the quality of Australian governance. But okay. there needs to be a degree of simpatico between the parliamentarian and the advisor. And so my parliamentarian that I, I had, I worked for was a classical liberal and I would consider myself also a, a classical liberal which is a relatively rare political grouping in Australia. It's rarer than it is in Britain. Quite a lot of classical okay. liberals in Britain, and we produced recently a great classical liberal prime minister in the form of Margaret Thatcher. And classical liberals going right back to the 19th century. So you had people like Gladstone was the other famous 19th century liberal in this case, but they would be a Tory now, a uh, classical liberal prime minister. And there were other people who had elements of classical liberalism in their governance styles in, in Britain historically. Um, but the, the two famous ones who were there for in power for a very long time were Thatcher and, in the 19th century, Gladstone. It's a rarer set of politics in Australia, partly because Australians do have a different relationship with the state, because they're used to the state being competent all the time. Mm. Whereas mm-hmm. British people, the state can sometimes be very good, but the, the state can sometimes not be very good. And so they have a, a more complex relationship with the state.
1: OK, so uh, thanks for that background. So one of the things that you'd mentioned on Josh's show about your experience was, because this was in the context of cluster B personality disorders and things like psychopathy, which is kind of what I write about. And so you'd said, you'd made a comment about something to the effect that the most influence from people of that sort in your experience in the Australian government was from lobbyists and that the, you know, the governments, yes. the parliamentarians were pretty normal people for the most part. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that and if you think it might be different in other countries. Um, and if that, cause that, that might have something to do with the, you know, the historical level of competence in Australian, in Australian governments, maybe, maybe the dynamics are similar, but not quite the same in a country like the US? Uh, so, yeah, well, I the the,
0: the the MPs and their staffers are quite good at walling lobbyists out. That's something that they're quite good at. They're not perfect at it. Um, but they they do tend to be quite good at it. We we tend to protect our MPs, the, the staffers do, and you don't get this bleeding back and forth between lobbying and staffers because you've got the circulation back into the civil service. Like, for example, the chap that was the economic advisor to my parliamentarian, he didn't go and become a lobbyist somewhere after my parliamentarian retired. He went back to Treasury so he didn't go to a lobbying outfit. He went back to Treasury. went back into the governance system. So that is possibly a difference. But, yes, this was my encounter. I, I didn't experience MPs as odd or weird people. I mean, they're interested in politics more than the general population, which is to be expected. And I didn't experience staffers, actually, as being odd or weird people. I, I thought some of them were a bit young and inexperienced, and I remember saying this at the time, but they didn't seem weird or strange the encounters that I had with people who I thought were wrong to use my very scientific description of before I met Josh of people with cluster B personality disorders wrong that's a term from cricket what you call a curve ball in baseball okay that's a wrong in cricket when the ball is delivered out of the back of the bowler's hand and you don't know which way it's going to deviate off the pitch Okay, so it's called a wrong in cricket and a curveball in baseball. and It might be going much slower than a normal speed speedball pitch, but it's much harder to hit if the pitcher has done the job properly. Same principle in cricket. If the bowler has done a wrong one properly, then you can, you can feel um, absolutely discombobulated facing it. And if you want to see an example of a, of a bowler bowling all sorts of deliveries that you can't in cricket that you can't predict – um, I don't know a baseball equivalent, but just look for it, just ask for Shane Warne dismissals and then click the videos and then just watch Shane Warne spot, S-H-A-N-E space W-A-R-N-E. He was a leading Australian bowler for many years. He's dead now. But there's lots and lots of videos of his most famous dismissals. And you will sit there and you'll just go, how did he make the ball do that? <laughs> That's weird. And it's the effect whenever I've done this with Americans is they will name a famous baseball pitcher with a very good curveball, and then start showing me equivalent videos from baseball of someone who could do, and I had, I responded, even though I don't know baseball, I have an awareness of stick and ball sports from cricket because baseball ultimately comes from cricket and rounders of going, and how did he make the ball do that? That's amazing. So and hence my word, Roman's. You just don't know what they're going to bloody do, and it's often not nice. And I've encountered this with lobbyists, and all of them, with very, very few exceptions, you got people who were trying to exert influence over parliamentarians and over parliamentarians' advisers and over civil servants. And I presume also outside of the parliament they were trying to achieve this effect with industry as well because I would get complaints that would filter back to me from companies um, about this kind of behaviour. And it, it all involves the things would do absolutely anything to climb the greasy pole, would butter up person A to their face while running down person B, and then would go over to person B and, and run down person A and tell person B to their face how fabulous they were. You'd blow smoke right up their bum and all of this kind of thing. And it was just extraordinary, and a lot of them were really nasty, and they would come up with strategies that made it impossible to do your job. Like you'd have sitting fortnight's sitting weeks, which is when the parliament is sitting in Canberra because Australia's got a creative capital like Brasilia or like um, Ottawa in Canada um, that isn't the largest city. It's a deliberate city where it's got the institutions of governance in there. So it's kind of sealed in a way. So all these lobbyists would converge on Canberra during the sitting weeks. And if, for example, there was some big newsworthy thing happening that was of concern to some lobbying outfit, they had, all, they had banks, phone banks of volunteers who would lock down the parliament just by calling every parliamentarian's office and having all the staff on the phone constantly dealing with phone calls so you couldn't do your job properly. And there was one organisation called GetUp, which isn't as powerful now, but it was absolutely notorious for this and it got that way that you finished up with parliament the, the actual parliamentary staff not the people working for the MPs it was stopping them from doing their jobs as well because all these phone phone calls were just being routed, routed all through the building and
2: sounds like a it denial of service to attack their
0: oh yes but with telephones Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, I mean, you could still work on the internet and send emails, and that was what we all finished up doing. But of course, it's very hard to write someone or to, to write to someone or pay attention to a detailed legal briefing, in my case, or economic briefing, in the case of my economics colleague from Treasury, and make sense of it and give sensible advice to your MP if you've just got the phone ringing off the hook every three or four minutes dealing with. So so they would lock the building down, and that was GetUp's trick. But others found other ways of of doing it that were less obvious than that. Whining and dining people, getting people to agree to things when they were pissed out of their gourd and then couldn't remember it the next morning. Uh, The most, uh, uh, and this was the ethnic lobbies, I'm afraid, would do this. Make trivial and casual accusations of racism or anti-Semitism or sexism, all all that kind of thing. And the, the idea was, was to try to isolate a staffer or an MP sometimes as well if they decided that that was a big, big enough nice scalp worth having and get them demoted from the ministry or get the staffer sacked or, or that kind of thing. So this whole cancel culture thing of getting people fired if they were a, perceived to be a roadblock from the achievement of a lobbying objective, I mean, I was there, started there in 2014 and this was just enormous and everyone's talking about our cancel culture in 2020. I wrote my first article in The Guardian, credibly, in 2015 about this whole phenomenon of deliberately working in such a way to get people who disagreed with you or made your life difficult to get them sacked. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this became the, the way to try to, get a ch- to, to effect change, was to go after someone's job um, or to isolate them in some way, and that was done by the gossiping method. And he would just have all this, the most appalling gossip going all around the, the Parliament building during, um, and people can look at, if they want to look at Australian Parliament House, just, you could just look at it on the internet and ask for images and get it from above, and you can see the Senate wing, the House of Representatives wing, the ministerial wing, and it'll show you where all the different passageways are. You know, and, and it was just, it was like a disease going through the building of this appalling gossip and nastiness from people and everyone said oh, politics is a dirty game and I'm going yes politics can be a dirty game but my god a lot of the, the the worst dirt is coming from from these people and particularly the way it turned on the thing that of course has now happened to Josh on the idea that if we can't break the, this person's resistance to us in a fair means by defeating them in argument or by you know or um or uh, by even by controversy in a newspaper, which is the conventional way to try to take somebody down is to have lots of attacks in a newspaper and newsprint in a very public way that everybody can see, then we will use this other method of depriving them of their livelihood. And, of course, I don't, I don't know if you've been following Josh Slocan's yeah. story, but he finished up having to leave the job he was at and he's now trying to live as a as a, as a podcaster and a substacker and I could see this coming. I remember it when he first started to do this. But then, of course, that was after the, the terrible year of 2020 where the things that I had first started to see, you know, in the mid to late 2000s or, and first wrote about in 2015, what that re- what 2020 represented was this stuff that was just in isolated patches in the universities or among lobbying firms or that kind of thing, just generalised. It became everywhere. And Josh's theory, because he first saw it and I first saw it, because Josh and I go back a long time, um, we go back to we were both on the fringes um, of of organised scepticism and organised atheism. Um, Me more scepticism, Josh more the atheism side of it. I wasn't terribly into it. Britain has never had the sort of religious issues that the US has, so being rude about the Anglican church is kind of like being cruel to a bunny Uh, so people don't Um, even Richard Dawkins is quite polite about the Anglican church and calls himself culturally Christian and this kind of thing Uh, it's just not as offensive as the way the moral majority and people like that have been historically in the United States just a very different tradition so uh, we were both aware of it then and the way skepticism and atheism just nuked themselves there's that there's that incredible scott alexander story about the way atheism just like star codex story and i normally can't abide him because he's just too long and wordy and and doesn't know how to restrain himself but this it's just a history of the way organized atheism and atheism plus just went and josh and i saw that we were privy to quite a lot of the awful stuff that happened And we saw this then in those organisations, the cancelling, the nastiness, the backbiting, the destroying of individuals by going behind their backs, and we both left. God, thank god for that nothing let's not have anything more to do with that That, that's really awful and then josh started to see it in progressive politics because he was a liberal democrat for many many years and involved in the gay rights movement i was not a liberal democrat i'm a classical liberal but i was also involved in aspects of the gay rights movement and marriage equality movement in australia a significant amounts of my drafting actually went into the subsequent piece of legislation that was passed for to legalize gay marriage in australia i mean that's What you do, I was a parliamentary draftsman. Um, And then we started, I saw it with lobbyists and Josh started to see it in his work and other people, academics, friends of mine who are academics, starting to see it all through universities and just and often coming up from below that's the thing that would bubble up from below like some revolutionary movements and it would be students trying to get their teachers fired and yeah, in universities or other academics trying to get an academic fired and i didn't put the pieces all together josh didn't put the pieces all together nobody really did and we were just sort of this is really awful and it seems to be getting more into other isolated areas but you can still reasonably write it off as I oh, know this is just mad Americans on the university campuses who believe that you know that the sky is pink or something you know it's just bonkers yanks ignore them it won't ever happen in Britain or Australia and to a large degree it hasn't happened in Australia the system has walled them out still in, in a lot of areas um, but it has got into Britain now, not to the same extent, and it's got into France, you know, so that's why you've got Macron getting up and saying we're not having it in, uh, in we're not having it in France, it's all nonsense. And people go, ah, oh, but all those people, they all came from France and, and they all come from French universities, you know, Foucault and Derrida and that kind of thing. And Macron is quite right to say, yes, they came from our universities and that's where we kept them you know, it didn't, his idea was that it didn't get into French society, but now it is from the United States getting into French society, it's into German society, it's gone through Scandinavian countries, there's even weird stuff going on in places like Italy and Spain, despite their traditional machismo and a strong sense of of men and women are different, equal but different, and they've even got sort of some of this weird gender recognition stuff going on in those countries where you would never expect it to happen. So it's, it's just burst at thanks, and it did that in 2020. And Josh was the first person, because he grew up in a household with a mother who was a diagnosed borderline and became familiar with what it looked like. And he's, he's not a, a psychiatrist himself, but he's had a lot of experience dealing with grief because he's worked in the funerals industry for years and years, odd oh years or something. So they're the, And they're the people, people like that see the individuals who turn up and destroy other people's funerals. Mm. Yeah, and that's the classic way that you know this, that a cluster B person will make everybody else's life absolutely shit. If they're going to get a golden opportunity to do it, it'll be at one of those big life events. It will be at a wedding or it will be at a funeral. And Josh saw it at funerals because of his work background and he in my view was the first to identify the common thing in a modern sense because I was just going around calling them all Romans and talking about the Nazis and the Bolsheviks which I wrote about in my first novel in the hand that signed the paper saying oh no these people are just uh, these political types of fascist and Bolshevik organisations they just attract bad people They attract wrongs. And the thing is, if you've been in criminal practice like I have, you don't have the silly idea in your head that um, there's no such thing as evil in the world. I can assure you when you've you've dealt with a a rape murder trial or when you've dealt with organised crime where people are trying to make a huge amount of money out of methamphetamine or something like that, then, yes, you understand and acknowledge that there is evil in the world and there are evil people. You don't have to make it religious at all. It exists. Criminal law will teach you that, taught me that, and it only took about six months of my bloody privilege before I realised that all my naive ideas when I was young were just a load of old cobblers. Um, But so for a modern person, separate from the research that was done by people in the former Soviet Union and in Poland and in Eastern Europe, Josh was the one who said, all these people are acting like my bloody mother. We had a conversation about this. This is before he started his podcast. He said these people are all acting like my mother; they're mad. And he said, but they're not mad in a way of bivvying bili- 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 bl- and running around with no clothes on, wandering down the street with your, you know, with your trousers on backwards or whatever. But they're not mad like that. They're not the, the loony, the, the stereotype of the loony in the loony bin. They're mad in the sense of unhinged desire to get exactly what they want at everybody else's expense and they can be really destructive even when they don't know exactly what they want because the next best thing is just to make everybody else's life really miserable. And he saw that and his health show is just based on that idea and I think, I think there are a number of different reasons for it. Uh, some of it has emerged for well, because of well-intentioned policies where people haven't, to use the Australian expression, haven't thought their thoughts through to the end. All of the destigmatization of mental illness, for example, we probably shouldn't have done that because what it's led to is the destigmatization of the behaviour. You know that it's it's all right if you're neuro not neurotypical to be incredibly rude to everyone. That it's all right to um, to be so emotionally labile that nobody knows what you're going to be say or be from one minute to the next. Uh, that it's all right to threaten suicide at work if you don't get a task that you want to complete. And you know, that, that's your classic borderline thing. Oh, if you don't do X, Y, Z, I'll kill myself, that kind of... And now that's, of course, being being rewarded with the trans thing. You know, if you don't give me gender-affirming treatment care, uh, then I'll kill myself. And you've even had families being told, oh, well, if you don't give your child this particular sort of care, then the most likely thing to happen to them is that they'll commit suicide. And it's just, oh God. And I mean, talk about pressing, deliberately pressing parents' buttons. Um, and Josh was the one who I think has actually caught, and he, he was on trigonometry. I, I was very pleased he was on trigonometry talking about it because it's now become quite widely known. It's not just Josh Slocum saying this or, or Harrison how do you say his name, Curly or Keeley?
1: Uh, Cooley or Kaylee.
0: Kaylee, so yes. Um, so it's not just you, it's not just Josh, it's not just Jordan Peterson um, and people like Marcus Evans, who was one of the whistleblowers at the Tavistock in the UK, which has now been closed down. The, the, mm-hmm. the gender abattoir is um, Janice Kavanagh, gay friend of my acquaintance, who's also a lawyer. He he's used to also used to be a criminal lawyer, so he's another one of these people who mm-hmm. absolutely knows that evil exists. Um Dennis Kavanagh always called it the gender abattoir because it was just little gay kids being chopped up as far as he was concerned, and I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, So a lot of people are now saying, hang on, we've just let the lunatics take over, the lunatics are running the asylum now, and uh, I'm not quite sure what the upshot of that is going to be, but I think Josh did a public service by being the first, probably the first to break cover, even more before, even more than Peterson, because Peterson started at the beginning as just a straight free speech No, 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 I'm not Mm going to have you put words in my mouth, go away. So he just started as a free speech person, whereas Josh actually went from the beginning. Now, these people are acting like my mother. Here's how my mother behaved. And here's all the ways that these people are similar. And he did like about eight shows in a row where he just set this all out in a very simple, easy to understand way.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I was as somehow, somehow I found out about Josh right right as soon as he, you know, I think he had two shows out when I found out about him. Um, Can't even remember how, who recommended him to me. But so I've been following him from right from right at the beginning. And yeah, same. I was just so, so pleased that he, he saw it so clearly, he communicated it so clearly. And, you know, he knows exactly what he's talking about. He's got the experience. And plus, he's just a highly entertaining guy. So he's, so yes. you, you get everything when you funny. watch him. Yeah. yeah, he's hilarious. Yeah,
0: he's very funny. I mean, he's 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 got, and he will allow me, um, one homosexual to another, to, to make this joke. He's got the bitchy gay man just down perfect. He really has. Josh brings the bitch. <laughs> he's very, very good. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, um to- Let's, let's, uh, move on to a slightly related topic, um, because you mentioned, um, well, in your last, uh, your last statements earlier in the show, um, you mentioned your first novel, um, that it was, you had to do research on Eastern Europe, um, Nazis and Bolsheviks. You mentioned, you mentioned the Nazis and Bolsheviks in what you just said there. This leads me to the discussion we were having on Substack the other day. So I put up an article on the psychopathy of Nuremberg, which is, uh, Basically, a little background and summary of uh, the work of one of the Nuremberg psychologists, Gustav M. Gilbert, um, one of the guys who had unlimited access to, you know, all of the guys on trial and got to interview them, watch them interact with each other. And so I, I share some of the some of the anecdotes and stories he gives about Hermann Goering, um, and what you'd said about the lobbyists reminded me a bit about Goering because he he talks about how Goering would do the exact same thing about. Talking up one person and and then um, talking down the other person, and doing the the exact opposite to this to the other guy, and doing that to everyone. Whether it was the psychologists and the psychiatrists or the attorneys and blah blah blah, everyone. He even the Nazis themselves. He'd he'd be he'd be doing it to everyone all the time. And in the comments, um, you'd mentioned that um, while you were doing research for your first book, um, you, how did you put it? That there were some. Uh, you kind of had to disabuse yourself of some of the the common ideas about about Nazis and Bolsheviks, and so I asked you to clarify that, and you said we'd, we we could do it today. So so yeah, tell me what, you, what what you meant by that. Yeah,
0: I I've thought about the answer to that. Okay, what it was when I was doing the research for this um, for the hand that signed the paper, and it involved like visits to Germany and Poland and Ukraine and all of this kind of thing, um, and involved it. it concerns a Ukrainian collaborator with the Nazis, um, who at the start appears to be more sinned against than sinning, but of course finishes up deeper and deeper inside the the belly of the beast. Um, And he's then subsequently um, in Australia because this period in the 90, in the 80s and 90s, a number of countries around the world had war crimes trials. And a lot of people at the time were shocked when, because so few of the people being tried were German. They all had Baltic names or even more commonly Ukrainian names or occasionally even Muslim names. They would have obviously Islamic background because they were from the Soviet stan. So they were from Uzbekistan or from uh, Kazakhstan or, or that kind or from the Crimea when it was still full of Tartars, so you had people who looked Asian. And even my grandfather, um, during the war, he said occasionally you would come across German soldiers and they would be in German uniform, usually SS, not usually Wehrmacht. And he said they ha- they were Asian. And he said, and I have to admit, I'm afraid he was a person of his generation and had pr- never seen someone with a slanting eyes and yellow skin before except perhaps in a newsreel. And he said, I assumed that they were Japanese. So you did did get this. Um, and so, so it was cl- about collaborators, but, of course, the collaborators, whilst they can provide a good story because they, ca- they can be a bit sympathetic people who finish up collaborating because they've often been oppressed themselves, they've been treated very badly, their, their, their motives are understandable even if you still think their, their actions are utterly reprehensible. But the people above them, you know, so you had the NKVD and you had the Gestapo and the, the Totenkopf. In the Waffen SS, which are the ones who, who officered in the concentration camps. There were never very many of them. There are only about 20, whereas you have two or three or 400 of the just guard staff would all be Ukrainians. And they would appoint, appoint non commissioned officers who were from an ethnic minority in West Ukraine called Volksdeutsche, which means they are. They go back to Catherine the Great, uh, when a whole lot of Germans were basically tra- craftsmen, were imported into large parts of, of Russia uh, or the Russian Empire, and many of them finished up in Ukraine because they were good farmers. But the effect of these people was that they were bilingual in Ukrainian and German, and so the Germans were using them to run the the, the troops who who only spoke Ukrainian and often because comments of education were completely dropped. This was the other thing that I discovered. Um, The Ukrainians couldn't read and write. I mean, one of the most appalling, disgusting things I discovered um, that that was kind of bleak is that they stopped using, they had to, the Nazis had to stop using Ukrainian guards at Auschwitz because they originally just were using them all over Poland. and the reason they had to was because the gas they used at Auschwitz was the Zyklon B, the fumic acid gas that, that's based on a pesticide um, and quite dangerous to the person sticking it in the gas chamber. So you, you have to be really quite skilled to do it, or otherwise you kill yourself as well as everybody in there. Um, whereas the other concentration camps, they were using um, fumes, vehicle fumes, exhaust fumes, and uh, so the, and the reason they had to stop using. Ukrainians in Auschwitz was because none of them could read the instructions on to how to be careful with this stuff. Because if you're not careful with this stuff, it'll kill you. You know things like that. You just you found out information like that when I was doing the the research for it. And I just formed the view as I was researching, and I went, you know, Haus der conference where they planned the Holocaust in Berlin, and all of this various places went to Dachau, that kind of thing. And, yeah, went to uh, went to various, uh, all the Soviet, read the Metrokin archives, you know, when all the Soviet archives were opened and so on and so forth, went to various parts of, that went to the Katyn Memorial and so on. And it's just, I just formed the, I, it was my very intuitive, these two political systems attracted to problems. People where there's just something wrong with them all the way down and you don't, can't quite predict how they're going to go wrong but you know it's going to be very wrong and when I say I thought that a lot of the way people had summarised both Nazis and communists was misconceived was I was thinking of Hannah Arendt and the banality of evil and yes there were genuinely examples of people who fall into that functionary category who would just sign a form Kill ten thousand people. Here's a form to sign. You know, da 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 da. Joseph, the Joseph Stalin line. You know, one death is a tragedy. A million is a statistic. That kind of thing. Those people exist, but I don't think Adolf Eichmann was one of them. And I think that Hannah Arendt didn't know what she was looking at. I think Hannah Arendt, uh, I think Adolf Eichmann was a psychopath. Um, and. Like, and sometimes you get, the, they're more obvious. I've got a, but the very detailed biography there that on the shelves, there, the man with the iron heart, which is a biography of Reinhard Heydrich, and he's obviously a psychopath. You read the book and you can see the man's a psychopathic. He people off against each other, uses the fact that he's six foot five and very handsome and charming, you know, to worm his way into women's affections and then get them to persuade other people to to do things for him. And you just sort of, oh, you're just reading this book. And just and and the woman who wrote it has uh, got unprecedented access to hydrant's widow in germany and the way he played his wife and the thing is you can see she's been played you're reading her interviews with the journalist or historian who interviewed her and you're just sitting there going my god your evil shit of a husband has just played you six ways from sunday and uh, you, you see this with this other, when you find out about Leverente Barrier and the, cruising around Moscow looking for sexual targets and this kind of thing, and you just suddenly realise, and I was thinking wrong-uns, wrong-uns, Hannah Arendt isn't right about the banality of evil. And then the particular issue, so I thought, individuals, yes, I'm sure they existed, but it didn't describe, it did not capture anything like a majority. Likewise, um, I read as part of research for the hand that signed the paper, Christopher Browning's Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Holocaust in Poland, Ordinary Men, is the the headline title of the book. And he is the one that goes into this is how military hierarchies work and even if you don't particularly like it, you'll finish up doing it because that's how military hierarchies work and people are inclined to obey obey their officers and that kind of thing. And once again, I had the same sense that I had with Hannah Arendt this is true for some people. Some people are like that. There's a reason why those obedience experiments and all the electric shocks and so on and so forth worked. And you can imagine that happening in a military context, but it does not capture the majority of people who did this. And it certainly doesn't capture the officer class who were making the bullets and getting everybody else to fire them. And once again, when you go through the book and you start reading the accounts of the officer class, you see the same thing playing people off against each other, isolating them from their friends or from their family, making it impossible for them to exercise any um, independent judgment or to have sort of cognitive peace uh, away from the the, the pressure that's placed on them. And so I was thinking all of these sort of, and and then I I read Daniel Goldhagen's book as well, Hitler's Willing Executioners, which I actually thought was more plausible because he makes the point A a lot of the organised Jewish lobby has got this idea in its head that the Holocaust could happen anywhere and that all people have to have is sufficient amounts of anti-Semitism and so on and so forth. And Gullhagen does a really good job of just disassembling that argument. No, 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 you need very, very specific historical circumstances and you also need really quite good technology to do this kind of thing or otherwise you finish up having to do something like the Soviets did in Ukraine with the Holodomor, which is literally hunger murder. That's what that Ukrainian phrase means, more is hunger murder. And you finish up having much more primitive tools at your disposal. If you're going to use science and technology, you actually need a society that's pretty good at chemistry. And Germany at the, in that period and for 100 years before had been the preeminent society in terms of chemistry. And so I, I actually thought Goldhagen was a bit more plausible than a lot of the others because he thought, no, there are particular characteristics that produce this kind of, behaviour in people and you can't just reproduce it everywhere. You have to have all these sort of all these factors to align and then it can happen. And so I just thought all of these very famous books, whether it was the banality of evil, whether it was the military structure, whether it's the fact that some people are instinctively cruel, which came up in issues with just particularly with the likes of barrier and that kind of thing, didn't capture everything. It didn't capture the personalities that were at the very heart of these things. And I just put my mental label of wrong on, on them. You know, so, some things, uh, they just attract bad people. You know, and you just get, they're like black motes around this very, very evil thing in the middle and they're all just coalescing around it. And I just left it at that because ultimately my skill is as a novelist and my first book was a bestseller and what I wanted to capture was the way very bad people draw in less bad people around them and then make those people inst- their instruments Basically, and that's what the hand that signed the paper is about. People who've been, in this case, the Ukrainian collaborators, been treated appallingly, but also Jews who had, in the Tsarist era, in this in Russia, had also been treated appallingly, and so thought communism is a bloody good idea. And the way they were sucked in by people who were just evil, um, and I'm not, I'm not afraid to use that word evil, because in another context, these are people who'd been bloody serial killers. Um, you know, what what's the choice? You be a serial killer and knock off thirty people over twenty years, or send bombs in the post to people, or do you be, you become commander of an Ansatz grouper or you know, uh, NKVD colonel and killing off all of those bad descendants of of, of the bourgeoisie? And so. I thought that very strongly when I wrote the book, but I then parked it because I went off and did other things in my life. But then when Josh did his show and sort of drew out these characteristics that all of these people had in common and then how it was infecting our politics again, I thought back to my first book and I started to get really quite worried and concerned about this and because uh, i've been c- trying to ignore it i have to say um i mean i would write commentary about it but i hated writing about culturals because i'm one of these people who just dislikes the way politics finishes up affecting pol- poll- polluting everything including all the things that i like doing that have nothing to do with politics here you know, whether it's it, whether it's music or cats or going to the opera or watching cricket or whatever it is um, i just don't like those things being colonized by politics and i am aware in both Nazism and communism, they've got this thing of everything, including all your, all of civil society, gets taken over and colonised by politics, and that's one of the signs that you're dealing with at something that's really quite dangerous and destructive. And so I then was forced sort of back on my heels when I watched the first few of Josh's things and forced back to the research I did with my first book, and then looked at the various pieces. I went back and reread all of the pieces I've written on Cancel Culture, and it must be 30 or 40 of the bloody things now, going right back to the very first one I wrote for The Guardian in 2015. This was before Brexit and Trump, so a conservative could still get pieces published in The Guardian without any difficulty. I went back and read them all, and I noticed I was doing the same thing that Josh had done himself with his mother and the activists that he'd encountered in the progressive left in in the US. And I kept seeing the same patterns over and over and over again. Do anything they can to climb the greasy pole. Often have a goal in mind that also means they get to be at the top of the greasy pole. But if they don't have a goal in mind, and sometimes they don't have a goal in mind, um, it's a great deal of fun to just make everybody else's life shit. And it's a disorder of character they used to be the Scots lawyers when they said that you couldn't use uh, this judgment some of them go back to the 19th century they would use expressions like character disorder or moral insanity to describe this sort of personality and these are just people you shouldn't be empowering and I honestly I mean I'm I mean I've got some civil service knowledge and some experience running organisations and hiring and firing and that kind of thing, and, and awareness, things that I need to be a bit careful of, you know, if I've got employees and that kind of thing, the, the traits that you should avoid and you don't want to hire okay. a person who is like that or keep them in the firm and want to give them notice and get rid of them, uh, that kind of thing. But that's ultimately fairly limited. I mean, this is a, a concerted, and this is one of the reasons why I've got Lorenzo writing these pieces, I'm doing my small bit, to exert some influence here using my literary background and the fact that people will read things that I recommend and that kind of thing. Of, of, um, there needs to be a concerted pushback from the normies of the world, from the rest of us, uh, to say um, this behaviour isn't acceptable. The fact that you are a victim or your ancestors have been victims does not buy you the right to behave like this. Uh, You don't get to sort of wipe your personal problems all over everybody else Um, and a lot of the things, and this is where, and a lot of the things that as a consequence of those sort of character elements and a lot of the things, this means that you believe in things that are nonsense and we've been here before because people in the past who believed in this kind of nonsense did things like burn witches. So that's kind of my approach to it i mean it's not a strategy really but i'm doing what i
1: can that's great um helen it's been great talking to you we've been going almost two hours so i think we're gonna have to stop it there better stop. But we better stop
0: now yes
1: yeah we better stop now because uh well there's still a whole bunch of things i'd like to talk about so maybe uh, maybe another time maybe uh so sometime in yes in the rest of this 2023 we'll get together again because i still want to talk to you about <laughs> roman law and uh, and common law and, uh and uh, all those and interesting read the things other
0: one. <laughs> yes and i'm <laughs> going to read much that one now is more interesting to you with your background and with your interest yeah. in polish history and that kind of thing is much more yeah. <laughs> relevant than no. the other, than the, the more recent ones <laughs> i'll
1: ch- i'll check it out but i but i did i did greatly enjoy these again uh, kingdom of the wicked uh, two volumes book 1 rules book 2 order so uh, i recommend anyone yeah any if we talked about him a lot, so check him out if th- that sounded even slightly interesting to you because, uh, yeah, you won't be disappointed. Very entertaining and uh, uh, rich reading experience. And Helen Dale's at helendale.substack.com. Any other um, places for people to to look for you, Helen, that you want to get out Twi- there?
0: I, I'm on Twitter. I'm a legacy blue check. I've got about 39,000 followers or something. I think 40,000, something like that. I'm at underscore Helen Dale on twitter so note the underscore first otherwise you'll finish up following a graphic designer from the west midlands um. So I'm at underscore Helen Dale, all one word. She got to it faster than me. I was a late adopter of Twitter. I wasn't on it until 2013 and I only joined because I was in practice at the time and basically because we acted for lots of tech startups, the firm that I was at at the time, um, the managing partner said, oh, everybody has to be on Twitter. And I was the last holdout. I was going, no, I'm not going to be on bloody Twitter. I held out for about a year and eventually they said, no, Helen, you have to go on Twitter. And so I finally did. Um, And it took me a long time to get the hang of it, I must admit. I didn't find it help a good program to use. But I've got the hang of it now, and I think my Twitter account is a nice mix of different things, and I try not to overdo the politics. I, I tweet my articles and I put a little bit of political commentary about usually British politics, occasionally Australian. I try to leave the American stuff alone because whilst I work for a US think tank, I've only ever been to the United States, either for conferences or a holiday, holidays. And uh, so I try to leave that alone and, and just focus on the stuff I know, which is British and Australian. And, uh, and there's lots of other sort of things, you know, sort of cats, and I'm good friends with the nature, probably the best nature photographer in Britain, a guy called Carl Bovis. And so I try to feature a lot of his work quite a lot because it's just beautiful um, nature photography. And he lives in a part of the guy called Somerset Levels, which is just beautiful countryside. And so I tried to put a lot of other things up there that uh, people would enjoy and um... And also I'm all over sort of the press, basically. I write a lot for different outlets. And the think tank that I have a fractional appointment at, I work at part-time, is an American think tank. It's called Liberty Fund. And I'm senior writer for Law and Liberty. And because that's a think tank, which is a I think you call a 501C, is C. that the correct yeah. term? Um, it means there are rules that basically because they are, you donate to them, basically, they're a very wealthy organisation, but a huge endowment. But people can donate to them, and they, mm. in addition to their endowment, but because of that, all the writing on there—not just mine—everybody's writing is completely unpaywalled. It won't cost you anything mm. because they're effective. What British people would call a charity, so they make it available for free. Great,
1: great. All right. Well, I'll put all of that stuff in the show description, and uh, yeah. So it was, it was great talking to you, Helen. Um, we'll do it again sometime. Great talking to you, and, and I
0: shall. I shall turn this off. <laughs>
1: All <laughs> right. Take, take care. care. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you.